Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. Support for this episode comes from Missouri-based Kuat Racks. For trailblazing rides or Class 4 river drops, Kuat makes racks that help get your gear where you want to be. Their new Class 4 kayak rack locks, folds, and stacks up easily for hauling and stowing your gear. Not to mention, you'll want to keep a Class 4 on the roof at all times because it actually looks good up there. Kuat, because you love your bike and your kayak. Get your next adventure on your vehicle at Kuat, that's K-U-A-T dot com. The kind of diversity of skills that these guys needed, he notices that, whereas the other guys don't. They just see improvidence. They're not masters of anything except hunting. By 1851, the image of Arkansas is so well imprinted then that in a book published, you know, not for a regional audience, but for a national audience, the image of violence is there. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. We are here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, right on the square in the Prior Center, which Kyle, I've never I've never been here before, have you? Nope, never have. We're joined on this episode by Dr. Bob Cochran uh, from the University of Arkansas. Bob, to say that you are a expert in folklore as it relates to Arkansas, the Ozarks, would that be accurate? Uh, I guess as accurate as almost any other description. I mean, there are things in folklore that I don't care about at all. Okay. You know, but if you get me in the, in the areas like you're in, uh, then yeah. Yeah. I first learned about you actually from the Bear Grease podcast that Clay Newcomb does, specifically the Arkansas image. And you gave some, you were a source for some of his perceptions of Arkansans and just how people are today and how people view us. Well, and then we reached out and we were like, we should do some some real weird folklore type stuff. Mm-hmm. Really, really think about, oh, I don't know, all the crazy things you may find in the woods that probably aren't real. And uh, Bob, you're like, ah, yeah, I mean, we can. Yeah. But like, this is my thing. And the more more y'all talked back and forth and Kyle was filling me in on, I was like, oh, that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. It's going to be cool. Yeah. So you mentioned to me, and as we were talking, you were like, well, here, here's what we can do. I have an article that I've written, and you sent it to me. I read it. I loved it. I loved the accounts, the contrasting nature that you um, were able to kind of pull from it. And so the name of the article is called The Gentleman and the Deer Slayer. Do you want to kind of set up what that is? And, and I know that you moved here, and this article kind of was born out of, you wanted to kind of get a lay of the land of what were the historical accounts of this place? And how does that kind of frame up the direction that I might take my curriculum with folklore? When I came here, um, you know, I, I was from the Midwest and I didn't know anything about really Arkansas. And the reason I came was, was the chance to teach folklore and, and literature t- together. 
So I started out really as soon as I got here uh, trying to find the earliest published accounts of life in Arkansas. And as it turns out, there were, you know, five or six of them. And over the, the next four or five years, I, I both read these, I found these accounts and read them and, and wrote little short articles about it. Um, one thing you might not know is that assistant professors in English don't make a whole lot of money. Okay. <laughs> and so, and the, my, my bachelor's degree was in journalism. I, I always knew that I wanted to write, you know, and, and write for publication. So there were little magazines. There was a month, sort of a Arkansas equivalent, short-lived Arkansas equivalent of Texas Monthly published out of Little Rock. And the editors of that published some, some of the short articles that I wrote about this. And the one you read was actually an academic article, you know, published in the Arkansas Historical Quarterly. Right. But I, I, I sort of made a habit of doing that, reading one of these articles and, and writing just about that particular traveler. Okay. And now, now to move toward what we... I, I, after I'd read a number of them, I realized that they grouped themselves... Uh, into into two groups, one of them very well represented, and one of them represented by only one guy. Mm -hmm. um, you could modify that a little, but it worked. It worked generally. That that most of the travelers were were scientists. Were uh, you know? I'll, I'll just pick one example. Thomas Nuttall mm. was a English-born botanist. And in 1890, 1819, he, he came up the Arkansas River so that his experience of Arkansas was always close to the river. And he turned around at Fort Smith. I mean, he made a very short trip over in the Indian Territory, I think. But, and he published his account. But he, what he was primarily interested in was, was plants. And he, he made collections of plants and described plants. And that, that's just one example. Another guy was a guy named Schoolcraft. Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. Uh, let's see, the not always eighteen nineteen is almost the same year eighteen eighteen. Uh, Schoolcraft was looking for lead deposits and, mm -hmm. and mining interests. He was a geologist, wasn't he? No, that's Featherston. Oh, okay. And, and Featherston, he's, he's another guy, an English guy, and he was a geologist. Yeah, okay. and he went to Hot Springs. The guy thought he died and gone to heaven, you know, because he. <laughs> He, uh, and for a geologist, he would, you know, that's, <laughs> where, where else would you want to be, sure. right? So, and all these guys come to Arkansas, but they're not interested in Arkansans. Hmm. They're interested in plants and, you know, hot springs and, and lead deposits. Yeah. And, uh, and they publish their accounts. And Featherston's the last one of of this this group. He he comes in the 1830s. So for the you know by the time I'd read all those, I'd gotten you know I'd read a, a, you know, four works that that focused on between 1800 and 1840. And then I and then I discovered Gearstocker, which is the, where where we're headed with this. He wasn't even an American. He was a German. Um, With and, a name like Gierstocker, yeah, you, you Friedrich, Friedrich Gierstocker, right? And uh, he comes here, and he and one he's much younger than he's in his twenties, you know. And his his reason to come to Arkansas is a little bit crazy. He he read Cooper novels. He read you know um, the Leatherstocking novels, and they're you know they're sort of r romances of the forest and prairie, and and he he wanted to hunt. 
I mean, it, you, you want in one sentence is he, he came and he wanted to be you know, leatherstocking. He wanted to, to live the life of, of uh, a fictional character in, in Cooper's novels. Well, he was interested in Arkansans. So they, they grouped in, you have these sort of gentleman scholars who just, and you, you know all this, they, he, they come here and their observations about the people and the society are, are disparaging. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, uh, they don't, they're not impressed. They're downright yeah. brutal in some They're cases. absolutely <laughs> brutal, yeah. And, and part of the comedy for me is the language that yeah. they use. I mean, because, you know, they're Victorian era, you know, that's the, the era of the writing, and we can, we can give some examples of that. But right away, you got these guys, you know, you, their, their comments are interchangeable. You could take the comments of one and, and make it believably fit in, the other, in another one. Uh, and then there's Gearstalker, who, who had a great time the whole time he was here. <laughs> he, he, and he, he traveled widely in the state. He came as close to here as, as St. Paul. Mm. You know, down there on, on the pig trail yeah. going. Yeah, I mean, one of his f- most famous bear hunts was, you know, down right near there. And I know people who have tried to find places, you know, that are listed, you sort of described, mm-hmm. so found, but I, I never did any of that. But um, so that was, that's it, basically. And that, that part of folklore really interested me. Yeah. Just interestingly enough, the thing you mentioned that, that you said, well, let's do some Halloween stuff about some more. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's a part of folklore. Well, that I'm, I'm would, thankful you aren't because yeah. after we talked for just a little bit, we started realizing, no, the actual history is way cooler yeah. than, yeah. I don't know, 30 minutes of made up stuff. Yeah, spooky stories. And <laughs> yeah. Stuff. yeah. So if I sounded a little suspicious at first, <laughs> that I, I, I get a lot of requests. Yeah. For sure. you know, spooky stories mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Oh, I'm sure. Ghost stories, treasure hunting stories. I'm not, I'm, you know, and so. But then, since you know Clay, and and you know, I knew that you were interested in in this other stuff. I was I was eager, but yeah, yeah, I've had a fair amount of experience being asked. To- <laughs> oh, I'm sure with Eureka Springs being so close. Oh yeah, and oh, yeah. all that yeah. stuff too. Yeah. It, it makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'm glad that you're eager because I'm eager. And what I really kind of wanted to do, you know, so we, we talked a lot about Arkansas. We also, I, I asked you, hey, is there anything that we can sprinkle in for Missouri? Because, you know, we're talking about a time period where really Arkansas wasn't even a state yet. I mean, Arkansas didn't become a state until 1836. And so um, the the lines to me, the boundaries, when you talk about the Ozarks, it's a little blurred. And so I asked you, hey, can we can we sprinkle in some Missouri accounts as well? and try to kind of paint this broad picture of people in this region um, at this time and and kind of add that into on top of the article that you wrote. To start, I want to go into just some of those early accounts of the gentleman, as you described, and some of the stories that they tell about the people, about the things that they witness as they're here. What were some of those early accounts of the gentleman scientists who really were detractors of the area? In, in the writings back to civilized America on the East Coast. Okay, well, maybe a good one to start with is, is Schoolcraft. I mean, one of the things Schoolcraft does, he was, he was often frightened while he was here. He would, you know, he'd stop to sleep in some tavern that would pass as a motel for that day. Okay. And usually there would be some sort of, you know, gambling or, or you know, drinking going on. And he was often terrified. 
Um, so the, one, one of my favorite stories, and it has a comic dimension, although he, he doesn't intend it to be comic. He spent Christmas with two families, the Holt and Fisher families, uh, in the sort of upper White River. Uh, and he, while he was there, two boys got into a fight and stabbed each other. And they weren't seriously wounded. I mean, they weren't mortally wounded anyway, but right. they, they, uh, they recovered. And he says, he, he says that what shocked him the most was that no punishment by the parents was administered in either case. Really? You know, and then he, and then he, but that's only the first half of the sentence. He says that they, that they seem to take it in stride, that, that their, their sons had knifed each other, you know. <laughs> but and he, he says that it was, it was seen as a promising character trait. That was, was, was no punishment, but it was, they were, they were, they were spirited young men. They yeah. Were, yeah. They weren't going to take any. Stand up for yourself. Yeah, that's right. They're going to stand up for themselves. <laughs> so they just bandage them up and, and, and uh, look forward to their next adventure, you know. But the phrasing in the book was that no, no punishment was administered. Uh, the, the behavior was seen as a positive character trait, wow. you know. So, you know, th that sort of thing. I think just tells you volumes yeah. about you know, and you can you can find that addressed in in sort of scholarly language that and another and Schoolcraft was very sensitive to the to the how women were raised and he, he was sensitive to that and he said that they were that they were this is raised to servile employment so they were in other words they were working the whole mm, time yeah. You know? And so you can see there that there's an attitude that women are raised to a subservient station in life and the men are raised to have their willpower developed, you know, really, you know, that's what you need on a frontier. You know, that's why you've got the guy with the gun out in front and the woman following behind. Women and the, children Yeah, behind. women and children behind, yeah. So just in that one little line, you see, okay. So it's easy to make fun of it. It's, it's a comic phrase. But you see in that the kind of inculcation of a kind of value system that's going to pay off, you know, on, in, a, in a frontier situation. Right. Kind of molded people to become what they had to be to survive in this environment that was so harsh and undeveloped. Yeah. And, and you know, this, these little boys that are stabbing each other, by the, by the, if they survive their childhood, uh, they'll be, you know, they'll be capable and and not intimidatable you know they'll, they'll they'll be they'll be they will be well suited to the environment that they're in mm -hmm. you know um so i mean and you talk about stuff surviving today i mean when i first moved here i lived out in winslow and some guy started messing with my you know putting up sort of clothesline fences on my land and of course i'm you know i'm city guy <laughs> so you know i hire a lawyer and yeah. all this stuff but <laughs> you're going but, to fight the, in the courts yeah I'm, but when i there was a gas station in brent brentwood that i became sort of you know i like to listen to the old guy who ran it and i told him that i'd had this problem and his advice which i thought he was joking you know but he said to me he says oh that guy he's always doing stuff like this you know so, <laughs> so here's what you do you just drive over to his house and tell him if he does it again you'll kill him and, <laughs> and, and, and i said i said you know just in my thoughts well, 
that's not an act I'm capable of. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm you'll not believe a guy, me. Yeah, I, I don't think I could be a convincing, yeah. you know, you know, threatening killer. But it, it was. It seemed to me that the guy was entirely serious. Mm-hmm. You know, that you don't. You don't need this hiring a lawyer is wasting your money. You yeah. just go over there and tell the guy stop or you'll kill him. And so, and this was 1977 yeah. or something. You know, still an attitude. Yeah, in, in modern that, day. Yeah. So you, you, I know that's sort of a digression, but you had mentioned, you know, the, how these, these things are persistent. Yeah. These attitudes are persistent. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to ask you about Schoolcraft. That's a name that we've heard of a lot in, in doing the podcast and different people mentioning. I've specifically heard Schoolcraft um, mentioned as a reference to um, the Ozarks habitat years and years ago when there was more regular prescribed burning. Um, he, I think it was Schoolcraft who mentions... You could ride um, through the Ozarks without knocking the hat off of your head, basically alluding to the fact that there just weren't as many trees. It was more open prairies and grasslands and upland savannas and, and things of that nature. And so I've heard his name, but tell me a little bit more about Schoolcraft um, and just what he was doing here and where he was coming through in, in Arkansas and in the Ozarks and what his purpose was as he was kind of on this mission at taking these accounts. Okay. He, he started from St. Louis. He traveled with a partner named Levi Pettibone. Um, the, uh, and he was, he was checking out uh, mining opportunities, specifically lead mining things. I didn't know it when I moved to Arkansas, but, you know, there's a town called Galena in Missouri. Um, the, the Galena is evidently some sort of lead compound okay. or something. And so there were there were there was thought to be real mining opportunities. Uh, I don't know whether you know there's there's a little town. It's a ghost town now because it's been ruined by by the mining P- pitcher or pitcher Oklahoma P I C H E R. Mm, I'm not familiar. It's in extreme sort of northeast Oklahoma. Um, that was that was a mining town. So and then you know there's bauxite. You know there's stuff in India. So there's a lot of extractive mining opportunities. Uh, there's two things you brought up. You brought up uh, what he what he was doing, and that was thing, and that you know that was part of his that was his purpose. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to find that, but he also noticed the the clearing out of understory in the in the woods, and and you know that that uh, that was an Indian practice, as you know, and so they. Uh, they, you know, he. I think he did observe that, and and you know could see why it would be a useful practice, not mm-hmm. necessarily an accident or, or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so you I mean I, I mentioned him being afraid? One of the great great things is in one of the places that that he stopped. He 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 says that he and his partner were were. Uh, so so frightened by what went on in the in the tavern that uh, they uh, got back on the river at first light. They were evidently at this point on the on the on the river because he says on the river at first light. And here's here's what I remember precisely the phrase: happy happy to have escaped bodily disfiguration. <laughs> you know, and you you're know. Kidding. So when you're reading through this stuff and you get to something like that, you know, you, 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 your pleasures are on several levels. Oh, you know, yeah. You're, you're learning about the sort of tolerance for violence, which is there in that Christmas story, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
and this is the the little kid who's knifing his buddy when they happen to get get loggerheads. You know, when he grows up, he's probably going to spend a night in one of these places. Yeah. So essentially, he was just literally happy to get out of there without facing bodily disfigurement. Yeah. That was the joy. That was like the the cap to the night was like, I made it out alive. My head is still on my shoulders. That's right. Yeah. And he usually condemns the owner of the place. He says, and then usually you get this line in more of these, more than one. The owner of the establishment, rather than guaranteeing the safety of his guests, uh, is actively promoting the the, the, the drinking. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and the gambling and yeah. all that. So it's uh, like I said, a lot of the lines are interchangeable. There's a lot of things to know about hunting turkeys in the Ozarks, but there's two things I know for sure. One, it's that turkeys have really good eyesight, so your camo matters. Canis makes an incredible turkey camo. It is comfortable, it is breathable, blends into the background like no other. It is the perfect camouflage for those long sits back up against a white oak tree, hearing those hens and gobblers hold up 200 yards away as I'm just waiting for them to come in. The second thing you got to know is you have to be prepared for anything. Whether it's a tom sneaking up behind you or a rainstorm coming at you out of nowhere, Canis has you covered. From the Nunavut rain jacket to the chamois fleece hoodie to the alpine pant with built-in knee pads, make sure you have Canis on you for this upcoming turkey season. Use our discount code OZARK for 15% off website or in-store, and good luck this turkey season. Sadly, hunting season in the Ozarks has come to an end. But in these hills and hollers, it's always been the off-season where woodsmen dialed in their equipment to get ready for the next hunt. And there is no better time to dial in your shot grouping with some new gear from Umarex. Our friends over at Umarex produce some of the most accurate air-powered rifles in the world, with everything from 22 caliber guns for squirrels and rabbits, 30 calibers for coyotes, bobcats, and coons, all the way up to 50 caliber air rifles that can take down white-tailed deer, feral hogs, and bear. Umarex leads the industry in accuracy and innovation, making some of the best hunting air guns on the market, hands down. Head on over to umarexusa.com and use our discount code OZARKAIR for 12% off your entire order and start getting dialed in for your next hunt. These guys like Schoolcraft and others uh, who are coming through to the Ozarks, where were they coming from that was such a different world than the, in their mind, uncivilized kind of wilderness area of the Ozarks? Well, I think that, it, that, and this would be true of Missouri as well, Schoolcraft is primarily associated now with the upper Midwest because he was a, he was a relatively young guy in this thing. I mean, younger, not as young as, as Gearstalker, but, but a relatively young guy. And he went on to become a quite famous student of Indian cultures. Uh, he's he in, in sort of Wisconsin, Minnesota, up there. There's, that's where his reputation is now. So the mining thing was a passing mm. thing with him. Mm. He may have been working for someone. I don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, like a chartered trip to go figure yeah, something out? Yeah, he, yeah. May have, he may have been scouting for mining opportunities in the employ of somebody else mm-hmm. or maybe just on his own. I'd, I'd guess on his own because I never, I don't remember reading that he mm-hmm. was employed by somebody. And yeah, maybe he's thinking if the gold rush could happen in the Rockies, maybe the lead rush could happen in the Ozarks. Yeah. Something like that. 
Yeah, and another thing about those guys that's comic is they were both, Pettibone and Schoolcraft were, they were in a hunter's paradise. I mean, there was, <laughs> there was game going by them, you know, mm -hmm. in the, in the, and they couldn't shoot it. They didn't know how to hunt anything. Oh, really? Yeah, they nearly starved. Oh, I mean, no way. <laughs> yeah. No, there, there are places where they're reduced to, you know, a turkey, you know, it's, it's, and there's bears and deer. I mm. mean, you get the you get a kind of comic impression of of these guys in a hunter's paradise who simply lack the most basic hunting skills. It would uh, be like me. Yeah. I mean, you you could give me a gun and send me out in the woods. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what to, how to shoot anything. Yeah. You know. And so I'm. I had a certain amount of sympathy for these guys, but you couldn't read the thing and not see that that they must have just been frustrated. And the people, when they would stop and some family would be there and the wives would tell them, you know, the gun, the first day they were out of St. Louis, I don't know what kind of weaponry they were carrying, but the wife of the family that they first stayed with said, that gun you have is worthless where you're headed. I don't know what, you know, yeah. that's not a good gun it's for where right you're headed. You yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was the wife who was telling him. Yeah, he probably had like a 22 short who rifle knows or something. What he, yeah, I mean, you know. And uh, and they, they so the, they're, they're true babes in the woods mm -hmm. out there. So they were very out of their element. Completely. Very uncomfortable, not just with the people, but just the environment. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good point. I never really thought of it. To bring them together like that, yeah, but yeah. What about some? What about um? You mentioned Silas Turnbow, and I know he was kind of one that you mentioned as here's some accounts from Missouri. Yeah. Um, if we mix in some of the Missouri stories, I know you've got kind of a few here. What What was Silas Turnbow? What was his purpose? What was he doing? And then what were some of the accounts that he he witnessed? Yeah, given what I've already said, you in some ways you'd make him be closer to um, Deerstalker, okay, because he likes it. Okay. You know, he, he likes the people. So he's later. He's actually later. He, he doesn't die till 1925. Um, I, think, I think it's fair to say, I'm, I'm sure that it's fair to say that none of the other guys get anywhere near 1900, mm -hmm. you know, before they die. Right. So he's, he's later, but he, uh, he liked these things and he consciously collected stories. That, I mean, he's alone in that with any of the people we're talking about. So that he, and and he tried to sell them, as as I th as I think I mentioned earlier. He he self published little volumes of, of stories, um, and and by this time he's already sort of romancing the Ozarks. You okay, know, these this this hunting culture and and. Uh, the uh, adventures of, of the hunting life with bear and deer. And, and there's little sections on, on uh, panthers and other things too. Gotcha. Um, so he's, he's a little bit different, but the, and, and he's consciously trying to, to sell it. Gotcha. You know? Well, I, I want to save him then. Cause I want to okay. go through some of the, the other detractors and then we'll come back to, okay. to Turnbow. So you mentioned, um, you've mentioned Schoolcraft, you've mentioned Pettibone, uh, who haven't we mentioned from that kind of early group of gentlemen well, scientists? We already mentioned Nuttall. That's too. right. Yeah, the botanist. Yep. So the very earliest one, the earliest of the ones that, that were available, and I, I should say something about scholarship too. These things got published in the 19th century, and then, of course, they fell out of print. And one thing that's happened in my lifetime is a kind of effort of scholarship. 
When I first came to Arkansas, this book hadn't been published, the Schoolcraft thing. The guy named Milton Rafferty uh, sort of took that old book and followed the path, you know, did a real scholarly attempt to map the journey and things like that. When I first came here in, in the 70s, the only one that had been done in this kind of modern scholarly edition was Nuttall's thing. The University of Oklahoma Press had published the, the, the equivalent of this Schoolcraft one. Okay. Um, the, the one we really have talked the least about is Featherston. Um, and I'm, I say Featherston, but I'm, it's, it's spelled in an odd way, and the English pronunciation is like, you know, Shakespeare plays, the yeah. names of... A so, bunch of extra letters. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> but, and I've, I've, I've heard that it's supposed to be even pronounced Fanshaw, but it's spelled like Feather Stone Haw, H-A-U-G-H. And as I said, he's a ge geologist. But he had the same responses to the people, even though he's a little bit later. He's right around statehood time. He's 1834, with the becoming a state in okay. 1836. Yeah. And he comes in, and, and he's traveling with his son. Um, and they, uh, they go, to, go to Hot Springs. And they travel around a lot, spend some time in Little Rock, exit the state uh, on, by going to New Orleans okay. on a steamer. Uh, everything I've said about Schoolcraft and and uh, and Nuttall applies to Featherston, except he wasn't afraid. He was not afraid at all. He was a belligerent guy. And so, How so? Well, you know, he, he, he said some guy, he, he really despised what he called the Arkansas gentleman who wanted, were always talking about the code of honor, you know, and duels and having all that kind of thing. Okay. That uh, and he calls them puppies. He's he's an old guy, but he's an old British Tory. He's an old British aristocrat, and he's not the least bit afraid. I mean, he's some Winston Churchill kind of guy, you know. And he, so he says, some guy threatens him on the on the uh, steamboat headed out of Arkansas. He doesn't seem to realize that New Year's gets celebrated, and so there's. He's shocked at this party that's developing, but it's December 31st, right? It's, and he's so, just clueless to the, the yeah, timing. Yeah, he's clueless <laughs> to it. But this guy's, guy threatens him, and he says, uh, he says, uh, considering his youth, I, I checked my temper and told him that if he took one more step to him, I would put him to death instantly. I mean, was like, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, he's, he's very aggressive. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, uh, except for that, He's not afraid, but except for that, he, you could pass him off as, you know, the same attitudes. You know, when subservience of women, no interest in education. We haven't talked about that. But over and over, these guys lament the fact that there's no education. There's no public school system. And, mm. you know, the only schools would be what they called subscription schools, where a group of people living relatively close to each other would hire a teacher. And they would pay the teacher for a certain term of, of, and he would teach their kids, you know. So it would be a parentally described or, you know, parentally subscribed uh, education. Uh, and they all, they all lamented that. They thought it was terrible. And they were all religious guys. Unlike Gierstarker, again, Gierstarker was... He's an, anom an anomaly. Yeah, he's an anomaly again. He doesn't care about education and he's not, he's not Christian. He's there to hunt. Yeah, he's there to hunt bears yeah. and, and other and other animals. How would he categorize the Arkansas gentleman? You'd mentioned that before the New Year story. What was his 
his view of the Arkansas gentleman. You mean Featherston? Or, mm-hmm. yeah, Featherston. Yeah, he he despised him. He thought they were he thought they were loud and obnoxious, and they were always threatening each other, you know, with, with duels and you know. So even the kind of upper class of society of the time, yeah, that they would categorize themselves as gentlemen. He's looking down on going not even close. That's right. Got and, it. And and he's so belligerent that he's he's not afraid of where whereas Schoolcraft and and Nuttall would have fled. Yeah, they were quick. they're not challenging them. Yeah, challenging yeah. them back. Yeah, but yeah, he said they they're always talking about honor, you know, and it, it's it's that code of dueling, mm-hmm. you know. What were their opinions of? people here and how they spent their time you mentioned lack of education but Mm -hmm. like what were their observations of how the people in the ozarks spent their time well i i think it's funny you ask that because i think it's kind of an inaccurate observation but most most of the time this is especially true of of uh the earliest guys the guys that came up the the uh river to to hot springs from the south they they started in Louisiana and came up into Arkansas. Um, and this is also true of different groups of people, the people who first chronicled the Arkansas Post down in, in southeast Arkansas. They thought they partied all the time. Really? But yeah, they, they had an, un, I mean, the, the kind of language they would use is that they had a, 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 a obsessive interest in balls, in, in dances and, and, uh, and, and partying. So I think it was, you know, they were they were improvident. They didn't they didn't look out to the future. They, I mean, so the 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 description is really quite coherent. They mm-hmm. they don't look to the future. A lot of times when when they came up in uh, Dunbar and Hunter came up uh, from Louisiana, uh, they saw it was really early. It was, I'm gonna say, eighteen oh five. Yeah, eighteen oh five. They, uh, they, they, they were re- really rare uh, outposts. There weren't even little towns for the most part. They, if it was big, it was a fort. You know, it was a, it was a military post. Right. Um, they, uh, they'd say, they'd describe how small the place was. Uh, one in particular, he said the, the cabin was 15 feet square um, and no, no, no floor, uh, one bed, for a man and his wife and four kids, they all just and you know you still you can go buy you, wow. you can buy these postcards in drugstores today. That show, I mean, I, when I teach classes on this stuff, I I'd go to Collier's and buy all these sort of Ozark postcards. I'm sure you've seen them. You know, guy laying up against a tree with a jug of whiskey and his yeah, wife, sure. you know, plowing the field. Yeah. Um, so the, the, it's very easy. This is just to revisit that notion. It's very easy to see the, the persistence of that stereotype. But this guy in 1805, he's dead serious. He said the guy is laid in no, no corn. It's coming winter. And, you know, these guys are likely, you know, these, these guys will be lucky to even survive. So the, uh, they, it's, they're a coherent group. Yeah. And they've, so they basically, at this point, you have these, these four or five different accounts and in your article i love it it's so clear that like now you jump to um uh gearstalker and he his perspective is so different but essentially they've painted this picture of people who have never been to this area and they're in these writings and they've painted this picture to them of this place is uncivilized it's violent these people are uneducated they don't think about the future 
they would rather hunt than plant agriculture and crops. It's like this terrible image of people. And then along comes Frederick Friedrich Gierstocker. Fried, yeah. And his account is completely different. Completely different. Couldn't be more different. How so? Well, first of all, he thinks, you know, if the people are having parties, he he likes parties, you know. <laughs> so so he, he 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 enjoys dancing, you know. Um the uh, he uh, and he and the fact that he's a good hunter, you know, that gives him a kind of cachet with them. I mean, he's he he he's already an experienced hunter, and he is he's from Germany, but within America, where is he coming from? Well, he he got here as quickly as he could. He got off the boat somewhere in the East Coast. I've forgotten where he got off, okay. but he and he hightailed it for the for what was at that time a kind of frontier. And he's late. He's he's even four years after Gearstarker. He he arrives in Arkansas in 1838. Okay. And stays till 1842. And he covers a great deal of the state. He's he's everywhere. Um, and he wants to hunt. And he gets here pretty quickly. And he stays. And when he leaves, he salutes the state. I mean, I could I could look it up for you, but he his journal says, you know, I said farewell. You know, we're in almost the same place that Featherston. He he left to go into New Orleans. So where Featherston is saying, you know, he's never seen such a despicable mob in his life. <laughs> um, the Gerstocker takes his pen and says, look, uh, you know, I bid farewell to this place where I met some of the most wonderful people I've ever known. And he thought they were hospitable to him. He used that word all the time. Hmm. It would be, he stayed six weeks. Think of that. I mean, guests get get old after three oh, days with one family. One family, yeah. He he stayed three days, and you know, guests guests get start to out outstay their welcome. Yeah, <laughs> he he uh, he, uh, he stayed six weeks with the family, and when he leaves, he's he said that he he was so moved by that that he found it necessary to dissemble his you know he had to hide himself away lest he tear up or something with i mean oh. it's very it's he didn't want to get emotional in front yeah, of these that, people that's that, right that's right wow and, and he and the the adjectives he uses the men are the men are even an old man he uses the language that you use for a for a distinguished older citizen you know and you know hale and hearty despite his you know years and the the, the wife would be a worthy matron or something like that, you know. And, and he's in, in every gesture, he he's he, he's still living in that world of of Cooper novels. Yeah, and he thinks these are living people from that period, and so he reads it positively. And he's he's very tolerant, by the way, of violence. He he, he goes hunting with a guy who said he was rumored to have had a fondness for stolen horse flesh. And he says, but, but he says, it didn't matter to me. He couldn't steal one of mine because I didn't have a horse, you know. <laughs> so he, uh, he, he's, he's, he couldn't be more opposite. That, that's the thing that, that sort of fueled that article that you read. It's right. it, just point for point, they contrast. That is so interesting. So he's, he's come here, he's about it. Like he takes it in stride, even the violence, even the, the bad stuff. He kind of puts that aside and sees what he wants to see from the the novels he's read, and he takes it on and really kind of becomes a part of the the culture. And in doing so, has a completely different perspective 
than the previous accounts. I wonder if he had, and I don't know if you would know this, but I wonder if he had uh, read the accounts of the other earlier gentlemen and kind of been challenged by what he read and then what he experienced himself. I'd, I'd have to say I don't think so, but I'm not sure of that. But I thought while you were talking, I thought of one example. There's a there's an incident in Gearstalker's reporting where he reports of a fight in a in a tavern in Ozark down down in Ozark. Oh yeah, and he says home of the hillbillies. Yeah, and he says this is this this phrase is part of his thing. He says my knife was out with everyone else's. <laughs> I mean he you know he pulls his own knife to defend himself. Um, so he you know he. <laughs> He he was ready to administer bodily disfiguration yeah. if he had to, <laughs> and not, right in. not yeah. just not just fearing that he's going to be subjected to it. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, all of the gentlemen except uh, Featherston are terrified of bodily disfiguration. Yeah, and this guy, he's this is you know, this is what's required. Well, yes, I happen to have my own knife. Yeah, you know? so I'm ready when you are. Yeah, so it's. Uh, it's, it just appealed to me to to write that article with that sense to, you know, that it gave me my title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the gentleman in the deer sleigh. Yeah. So what what were some maybe some of his other stories of either hunts he had been on or just kind of um, some of his high points of his travels in Arkansas that that you think really landed for him and kind of made that his perspective. Uh, three things. I think he admires old, he's a young man, and I think he admires old frontiersmen. There's a guy he names Slow Trap in his thing, who he treats as a kind of fountain of wisdom. And the, uh, he, the, the kind of diversity of skills that these guys needed, he notices that, whereas the other guys don't. They just see improvidence. But what? But he sees well. These guys have to make their own shoes, so they know something about tanning. You know, they know. You know. In other words, they're they're not masters of anything except hunting. Mm-hmm. But they are. They're. They have some level of skill in the wide variety of of things that are needed because you can't call anybody. You know, if yeah. something something breaks, you got to fix it. Yeah, you know? and, and your nearest neighbor could be. Who knows how far away? That's right. So, um, they, so anyway, we, I said there were three things. The first thing is that he's his his admiration for older men who are sort of patriarch figures. You know, they have families. They they uh, and they provided for their families um, and have the skills to do that. Um, the there is a great deal of of stories about hunting. And the and the and the featured hunts are bear hunts. That he doesn't have featured stories about hunting deer or or panthers or anything else. His his featured hunting stories tended to be bear hunts, and maybe the one that he gives the most extensive is the one down near Saint Paul. Okay, uh, a guy gets killed by a bear in that fight, and he and he's moved by that. I mean, this he he sees that for all the the romance of of hunting bears that you know one slip one one mistake and and you could be a dead guy wow so that so the so for the old guys uh bear hunts and then he has a particular weakness for 
for families. I don't know anything about Gierstalker's life in Germany before he came over here. But not knowing that, I would guess that maybe he didn't come from the from the warmest family background mm. because he he is an absolute sucker for that. He'll land in this guy, this fan and, and like this the near again it's near St. Paul. I think he he spends six weeks with this family. Yeah, like I said. Well, the, the hospitality of that is astonishing. You know, the hospitality of, of of them welcoming him. Now he could I'd probably pay his way. You know, he probably hunted successfully with them. But uh, those three things I think stand out for, in his. Thing. Yeah. When he goes home, this is an interesting little thing. He he was famous because his mother had collected some of his letters to her and published his accounts. So he returned, Back in Germany. yeah, and he be in German, you know, and he became, you know, well, he he arrived back home to find that he was a well-known author, wow. you know, and he wrote sort of river pirates. I mean, he wrote a thing in German called the river pilots, uh, the river pirates of the Mississippi, and there are some scholars who say that's the first Western. You know, so oh, he shows cool. up. He, no, that's awesome. He shows up in in sort of histories of the Western as a as a literary genre. Man, uh, that is cool. Yeah. So, are there have any of those letters? I, I'm assuming that you, since you know about it, they've been written in English or translated to English now. There, you're not saying that there's German literature over in Germany still that depicts the Ozarks that we maybe don't know about. Would that be? No. The the, the thing that it got translated by an awkward title, but it it has gotten some of the same treatment that these things. Okay, have. gotcha. They were published in Germany. They've been translated. The the copy I own in my office is called Wild Sports of the Far West or something like that. And I don't read German, but I can read enough of the title that it, that that title does not. It's not Wild Sports of the yeah. Far West. Yeah, and no. Uh, so the, it's been translated into English. Gotcha. And people who study Westerns as the, their primary interest have, have often sort of include him as, as a sort of founding article. Oh, that is super Founding cool. author. That is very cool. Uh, I w okay, now I want to go back, circle back to Silas Turnbow. So we've, we've heard from Gearstalker. Now back to kind of Missouri. He, he's another guy who really kind of, he wanted to hunt. He came here looking for the pursuits, the romantic idea of the Ozarks. What was his perspective and, and what was he doing? Okay. It was Gearstalker that did that, right? Turnbow right. didn't, Turnbow was, uh, I think, actually born here or reasonably close to it. Okay. But sometime in middle life, Turnbow started to consciously collect stories about hunting and, and about old timer life. Um, and he tried it to, he tried without success to make a living at it, to produce books of, of stories that he'd collected from people. But the the thing the main thing to think of is that he gets up in the morning and goes out looking for old timers and he asks and when he comes comes to a community, he asks, and it's it's his own community. Mm -hmm. I mean part of his own family gets prominent treatment in the book. Okay. Um, but he, but he certainly branches out. And when he hears that there's an old timer in some place, he goes and talks to him. 
He's like a podcaster. Yeah, like he's he had, like a podcaster. If he had had a podcast. <laughs> or a folklorist, right. So <laughs> He would have gone and recorded these conversations. That's right, he would have. And, and this book, you know, the White River Chronicles of S.C. Turnbow, they had a complex history because he, you know, he, he ended, I mean, this is a sad story. At the end of his life, he, he gave up. He'd, try, he'd published, you know, I told you before we got on the air, a, a, a 19, what, 1903, 1905, he publishes this Fireside Tales of the Ozarks thing, tries to sell it for 50 cents, you know. Um, but at the end of his life, he was, he was out of energy. He sold all of his writings for $27 to a, to a book dealer, you know, from Kansas City or somewhere who ended up selling it or there might have been a couple of owners in between, but the, the library in Springfield, Missouri, owned, bought it. Okay. And then now people have published it. And this, you know, the University of Arkansas Press published this. And it's, it's only a small part of it. I mean, the very first line in this thing says, we have taken 400, the editors took 2487 pages of type material and selected 425 pages for this book. Wow. So, so it's just a small subset of his yeah, stories. Yeah, it's a small subset of his stories. But they're positive. I mean, he he admires the people. So that's why, just speaking generally, I grouped him with Gearstocker. Right. He's a fan. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he's a fan. He's, he's a native fan. He Unlike these other guys who come from, you know, the more settled regions of the East Coast, or in, in Gearstalker's case, Germany, and in Featherston's case, England, um, he's from here. Mm -hmm. He's from this area. And, and he had some stories. I know we kind of wanted to talk through some of these that were just kind of wild, kind of sure. cool. If you want to um, hear you've written down, Man Fights Bear. I think that's one that people would, would want to hear. All right, sure. Let's, let's, let's have a look at that one. I, I got a little bit away. I'm sorry about that. No, but, you're good. Yeah, the title he uses is How a Boasting Fellow. See, you know right away that this guy's going to get his come up. <laughs> How a Boasting Fellow Was Vanquished by a Little Bear. I'm going to start with the first time they see a bear. They said this bear was what hunters call a full bear or a runt. It was brown in color and a year old. Bruin was basking in the sun and was resting quiet. We told our companion in a jocular way that now was the time to show his bravery, for yonder was a bear waiting for the attack. The man replied that he did not desire to belittle himself by jumping on such a puny-looking creature as that bear looked to be. <laughs> I want to fight a bear, he said. That's more of an equal match for me. But, continued the man, rather than miss a fight, I will slap it a few times to see it cut up to get out of my way. We had no thought the man actually intended to attack the bear, but to see him back out as we supposed, we landed the canoe 150 yards below the log the bear was on. And believing we would bluff him, we all went ashore. The little bear did not appear to notice. Apparently it was asleep. We now passed up the bank and made a circuit through the dense cane and approached that part of the shore where the log was. The bear did not move, but from the manner it was breathing, it was in a deep slumber. To our surprise, the man still showed his inclination to fight the bear. We told him it was dangerous to do so for the beast might kill or cripple him, but he insisted so strong to be allowed to attack Bruin 
And finally seeing that the man was in earnest, we gave up persuading him and agreed to let him tackle it and told him to go. As the fellow started into the water um, to wade out to the end of the log where the bear lay, he said, now men don't show any foul play in, any, in my favor, but you can help the bear if you feel like it. <laughs> as he waded alongside, he, as he waded along at the side of the water, in the, the side of the log, the water increased in depth, but the deepest place was not over two and one half feet. The noise and bluster the man made as he went along through the water roused little Bruin from his nap and slowly raised up on his feet and turned around with his head toward his foe. And after eyeing him an instant, he seemed, he started and walked along the log to escape into the forest. The man now halted, and just as the bear was passing him, the man, by a skillful movement, jerked the bear from the log into the water and dealt it a blow with his clenched hand, and the battle began. The man being robust and very stout, and Bruin being so small in size and thin it fleshed, it seemed that the man might overpower it. While the fight progressed, the combatants worked nearer to the shore, where the water was 18 inches deep. Here the belligerents settled down to desperate fighting. The water splashed and foamed. The young boaster struck the bear with his hands and kicked it with all his strength. Little Bruin returned the compliments by biting and striking the man with his paws. It was a busy contest, as much as it was interesting and amusing. We cheered both man and beast. As the battle went on, we noticed that little Bruin was getting the better of the man, <laughs> but we continued to cheer for both of them. Sometimes we would hurrah for the bear alone and then for the man, and at times we would halloo for man and beast together. In a few minutes more, we said we saw plainly that the man was badly worsted, <laughs> but knowing but knowing we could interfere before the man would, but knowing we could interfere before the man was severely injured and that he requested us not to show final foul play for the bear, we let them continue the combat and went on with our cheering. The, uh, I'm going to skip down to the end because it, it goes along. Although he was not seriously hurt yet, he was the worst whipped man I ever saw, and we enjoyed many hearty laughs at his expense. This, this incident put a quietus on his boasting as to his prowess as a bear fighter. We saw more bear as we went up the river and back again, and when we would catch sight of one, we would tantalize him by saying, there's another bear. Do you want to fight it? <laughs> and his invariable reply was, no, I don't volunteer to fight any more bear. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is a kind of a, a depiction of, these are some of the characters that inhabited the Ozarks at the time. Right, right. They spent their time hunting, fighting bears, telling stories and and really not that much different than I think sometimes what we see today as far as people who hunt and with a great caveat that I have never met anyone who's fighting bears no. <laughs> with hand and fist but um but it uh, not that different than a group of buddies hanging out today at deer camp telling stories daring each other to go do something kind of funny um this is just kind of the the way of life the normal way of life back then yeah, and then there's a little part of me that, remember, I got hired as a folklorist as an English teacher. The uh, the first book I wrote down here was the, bi the biography of, of Vance Randolph, the Ozark folklorist. Yeah. And he has a story in one of his uh, Ozark folktales collections called Tobe Killed a Bear. And it's a figure, it's a figure, Tobe is a man, and, and Tobe is not a braggart like, the, like the guy in this story. Tobe, 
Tobe is uh, assisting a woman whose house is being an old woman who lives by herself, and her she's worried about a bear that's coming into her, coming up on her porch. And he he says, "Well, you know, I'll come over and I'll I'll fight the bear," and he and he does. Well, I don't know whether you remember this from high school English, but there's a story in old English called Beowulf. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Beowulf fights bear. You know, he, in fact, it's the, the name Beow is bear. Okay. So he, in other words, it's a really ancient story trope, a, a, a story center or sort of type of story. Uh, and this story, you know, comes very close to that. Mm. I mean, it changes the character of it. And most of them, the Beowulf, the Beowulf figure is a hero. You know, as in Tobe killed a bear, you know, Randolph's story. Um, every time I read that story of Randolph's, I wonder whether the guy actually told that story or whether Randolph just Ozarked Beowulf. You know, yeah. Ozarked Beowulf. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> Put his own spin on it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, th there's a suspicious number of really famous stories that Randolph has turned out as Ozark folktales. Yeah. You know, Chaucer, there's, there's Chaucer stories that show up in his, his books. So it's there's 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 laughs involved in it too. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a question for you that could be a little long, but we've heard we've heard some history, some hunting stories. I do I know we have a couple more hunting stories if we get to them we want to hear. Um but we're hearing about how the frontiersmen and their family in the Ozarks were were maybe some of the last kind of true renaissance men of early American history. And I know I mean, that's not a definitive claim. People had to survive. Mm -hmm. But some accounts are saying they're lazy, they're not planting, they're not doing anything. Other accounts are saying they're actually a little bit good at everything, yeah. really good at one thing. Moving into uh, just kind of the the spirit of the Ozarks in Arkansas and Missouri and what people had to do to survive and the Ozark gentlemen and the bravado that comes with that that could also be lent towards bragging and and kind of a, a, a bigger-than-life fictional character of of kind of men in the Ozarks, specifically outdoorsmen. My question is, is how much of that, how much of that spirit kind of carried into modernity and kind of the, the Ozarks that we know today? And what are the best parts of that that you think led to a place like the Ozarks flourishing? And then what are some of the worst character traits that you see uh, that maybe people from Arkansas and Missouri are unwilling to let go of because it's just a part of who they are, even though the rest of the world may look down on it and go like, that's just not normal anymore, man. <laughs> like, yeah. What are kind of the two, the two rising uh, identifiers that you see that have carried on really in the last 200 years from the early 1800s, now the early two, 2000s? Well, the, on the positive side, I guess that, that, that sense of competence, a kind of, broad-based competence, you know. the I'll give you an example because it's, it's something that I'm particularly poor at. But the last book I just wrote is a book about an Arkansas author named Charles Portis, the guy that wrote True Grit. And one of the things that was quite clear in his works is a man uh, is expected to be able to take care of his car, you know, well, you don't even have cars back in the times that we're talking about. Right. But, you know, a little, knowing a little about everything, mm -hmm. you know, 
You do have, they would have had to take care of their horses. Yeah, you got to take gear, your, their guns. That's right. And the current equivalent is your truck, right? I mean, <laughs> the current equivalent. And a guy like myself is, I mean, because I felt personally, if something goes wrong with my car, and I don't care what it is, I mean, anything mm -hmm. goes wrong with my car, I do not tell myself that I can fix it. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, I take it directly to, the dealer or whoever is, you know, my mechanic. Yeah. And and sometimes I've been laughed at because, you know, it turns out that, you know, a fuse is blown or something, you know, <laughs> something very minor. So I think there there's there remains in in this culture. I, w I, don't, I wouldn't know where to draw the line. Um, but I came from Indiana, and I don't think that is a person in Indiana would have felt as 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 exposed to to uh, criticism if he knew absolutely nothing about cars. Whereas, you know, I'm, if I'm out there in the world living out in Winslow and, you know, I have a flat tire and I don't, I mean, I'm exaggerating now. Sure, Even sure. I can do this. But, but um, you know, now I'm getting pretty old, so I might not be real quick about uh, changing a tire. But, you know, I, that I would feel exposed to, to criticism here. Great, more than I would have, I think, in Indiana. Mm -hmm. So on the positive side, I think a kind of sense of a, of a kind of minimal competence in a, in a broad range of activities as a, as, a, as a signifier of competence, not just for men, but for women as well. I think that women would be mm -hmm. you know, expected to know about canning and know about, you know, traditionally female, mm -hmm. you know, things. Uh, on the negative side, I don't know. I mean... The obvious thing to cite is given what I do for a living teaching is I think that it's just today even, maybe more than any time since I moved to Arkansas, um, teachers and librarians and people like that are, are subject to criticism, you know, and, and, and disrespect mm. in, in ways that would be greater than in most other parts of the country. Um, so that I think that the lack of lack of respect for education mm. uh, is probably is uh, would be the most thing. Now I would be sensitive to that, sure. given given that that's my yeah, job. Yeah, it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but uh, you know, I mean, they, just the stuff we're talking about tonight. There, there. You know, people say, well, they don't need to hear about that. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't need to hear about that. So you think even the the good characteristic of I can figure it out and do it on my own and know a little bit about everything. I'm, in, I'm it's interesting you said that because I grew up with my dad my dad is uh third or fourth generation Arkansan, which makes me I think fifth generation. And I thought that was a family trait. I thought that attitude of like I can figure it out. I don't need anybody. I'm not going to pay somebody to do that. I'm going to make it happen on my own. I thought that was a Plunkett family trait. And you're now telling me, you know, that's that's part of being in the Ozarks. Yeah, it's, it's um, the Plunkets are longtime Ozarks. Yeah, that's yeah. that's been that's been passed down. That's I did not think about that. That's really cool. You're saying some of that may may even be um, kind of overpowering social pro progress in some ways. Well, of like I listed you don't need that, that, that a, so I listed that as a positive side of it, though. You know, mm -hmm. there you you would ask for something positive, right? Maybe it's too it's too strong in some yeah, ways. Yeah, it might be too strong, but it's but it certainly is a good thing. Yeah, it, it, you know, a sense of of uh, competence mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and competence in the family unit. Mm -hmm. So I want to stress that it's for the man and, yeah. and the woman together. That you know, as parents, you you want to feel like 
you want your kids to feel like you've got it. Mm -hmm. You got it under control. So you, you see know? those two things as two distinct, two yeah. pretty distinct ideas. And then the okay. education, I think, is the is the drawback that mm -hmm. that we, I mean, just statistically, we have very low graduation rates and things like that. Yeah. And and uh, so yeah, that that'd be the best guess I could do off the top of my head. Yeah. We mentioned some two major publications that were um, really a published image of Arkansas that kind of personified this time. Why do you think those are so important? Well, Arkansas has a minuscule role in both of these books. I mean, I think there's exactly one reference to Arkansas in Moby Dick. But what it does, and Moby Dick comes out in 1851, and we've been talking about things that were published in the 40 or 50 year period just before that, right? So here's the, here's the reference in Moby Dick. It comes near the end when the, the climactic battle with the whale is going on. And Ahab, is, I mean, he gets in one of the boats, right, to go pursue the whale. And he's, he attempts, and this is, the, this is the line, he says he attempts with a six-inch blade. So he has a, he has a big bread knife type mm -hmm. thing, you yeah. know, to, to uh, pierce the fathom-deep heart of the whale. Well, in other words, he's an idiot. I mean, the guy, <laughs> the guy has a six-inch blade, and he's going after a six-foot-deep part of the whale. So here's, so just on the surface, it, it's, it shows the guy is, is deranged. And, of course, he dies. I mean, this is he gets tangled up in the rope and gets hauled off by the whale. But what it shows you is that he's in the phrase he says that that action is like an Arkansas duelist. Okay. And so by 1851, that image of violence mm -hmm. in the state was so well established that a writer writing about, he couldn't be further from Arkansas. He's somewhere in the South Pacific hunting whales, you know, but he uses that as to make his point. That, so the, the image of Arkansas is so well imprinted then that in a book published, you know, not for a regional audience, but for a national audience, that's, so the image of violence is there. The other one, you know, 25 years later, um, Uncle Barry Finn, it's stupidity. It's stupidity that's on display. You remember there's these two bad guys in the, the, the Duke and the King. Um, and they're, they, they go from town to town and they put on a show, you know, the Royal Nonsuch. And it's, you know, and they try to, to, to advertise it as a kind of hoochie coochie show, you mm -hmm. know, that it's going to have some, some, you know, blue stuff in it. Right. <laughs> and so the guy, there's a page in there where he's, where the one of them is putting up a sign. And at the, he tells all this stuff. And at the bottom, it says women at the price. And it says women and children not admitted. And he steps back to admire his work. And he says something like, I'm, I'm quoting, but it's real close. He says, there. He says, if, I don't, if that don't get them, I don't know Arkansas. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, so he's, he's just saying these are gullible fools. Right. You know. We put this up, and women and children not admitted. That makes them think there's going to be a lot of, you know, hanky-panky type yeah. stuff in this show. And they got nothing. They're two guys. They're two, two old guys. There's no, they're not traveling with any 
you know, two-headed beasts or beautiful women or anything like that. Right. They're, they're going to put on this silly show. Two of the most famous novels in American literature. And by 1851, um, the, the image of Arkansas as a place of tremendous violence and kind of gullibility are firmly established. Yeah, well, well enough that the reference in these books is so well understood that exactly. the author doesn't even question to include them. No. People will understand what I mean. That's right. Gotcha. That's right. That is very interesting. Yeah. It's a, I think, it, I could be wrong, but I think that's the only appearance of Arkansas. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to kind of, to wrap it up. And, and this is actually how um, I remember you, you wrapped up the article and I thought it was a really good insight into people, into different perspectives. You say at the end of the article, as you as you show the detractors, the 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 early gentlemen, kind of, you know, basically giving Arkansas hell, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they don't like it at all. Then you you show Gearstalker, the Deer Slayer, and you mention people like Turnbow, these people who would be um, for the Ozarks and for these places and the the people in them. And you close the article with a line that basically says, uh, "I wrote it down here. It's who you are shapes what you see. What you bring is what you take away." And to me, I, I resonate with that a lot because you see these very contrasting accounts and depending on what their purpose was, what their mission was, and what they were looking for, they got two very different things out of their their travels and their experiences. Um, why and, and how did you kind of come to that insight as something to kind of close the article and put a bow on it? Like, how did you arrive at that? Well, maybe you, you might be giving me more credit than, than I deserve for, for sort of plotting it out. But I think it, that I think what I'm really saying there is, if you arrive in a place like Gearstalker did, and you have positive expectations, then somehow that's going to be a kind of aura around you as you move move through that world. You you show up at these people's homes, and they're going to be able to read that you're that you're looking down on them or not looking down on them, you know? And he's not looking down on them. And he he expects the best. And so he gets it. I mean, you know, now I, there's obvious places where that would not do well for you, you mm-hmm. know? But but in general, I, th- I think that, you know, what you see is, is you know, you, you bring yourself. And he brought, he just happened to be a young guy who was a good hunter, you know, and he came into this place where those things were going to help him, you know, merge happily into that environment. Whereas these other poor bastards, I mean, they, they're <laughs> they're 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 terrified. They're they they don't have any of the skills necessary. I mean, there I'd contrast uh, um, schoolcraft with uh, with Gearstalker. I mean, they they. They can't hunt anything, and he's a good hunter. And so when they when one night out of St. Louis, when Schoolcraft and Pettibone check into this old this this settler's cabin, they 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 look like Martians. They've you know the the wife says, "What are you doing with this? You know, with this your outfit? You yeah. know that would be their word. Your outfit is crazy for what you're trying to do." Whereas. When Gearstalker shows up, he's he's got the right equipment. He knows how to handle it. He rides his horse in. You know, he, he knows what he's doing. So yeah, I mean, I think, but the, yeah, the moral side of it, you 
when you when you expect the, when you expect good things, you you get good things. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Carkin, we we really appreciate your time and um, have enjoyed hearing your stories, hearing the stories of of your work and um, really what you've kind of devoted your life to and, and telling the stories of these people and and just learning about the folklore of this area and other places. We really appreciate your time and been a pleasure hanging out with you. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, we love making this show and being able to offer this podcast to y'all for free. But if you're listening and you want to support the Ozark Podcast to allow us to travel even further and meet more interesting people, head over to our Patreon and sign up to join our most loyal listeners. Let me tell you, these folks are 100% certified Ozarkins. And of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton, for providing the amazing music for today's episode. Check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com.